Four times this year, we are going to take one Sunday, the beginning of the month, and we are going to take a break for one week from our exegetical series through the book of 1 Samuel in order to take an entire sermon designated to one aspect of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that as a way to help our time in observing the Lord's Supper. You see, what happens sometimes is that on Lord's Supper Sundays, we have this moment between songs at the beginning of the service, and it just becomes rushed. And sometimes we don't take our mental focus and set it upon what we're actually doing. And what we want to do is today carefully consider Jesus Christ. We're going to set the entire sermon on one aspect of the doctrine of Christ. So I'd like to ask you, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to consider Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you a word. That word is epidemiology. Now, you've probably heard this word with increasing frequency in the last several years. The official definition of epidemiology is the branch of medicine which deals with the incidence, distribution, and possible control of diseases and other factors relating to health. And as you can imagine, this has been a large topic of conversation since March of 2020. However, there was a time when people had no idea how disease was spread because they didn't even know that germs existed. The first mention that we know of germs in all of history comes from Thucydides, he's a historian, and that was in 400 BC when he argued that the plague that took over in Athens was caused by what he called invisible seeds in the air. Now flash forward more than 2,000 years to the year 1720, and there was a man named Richard Bailey who theorized that the plague was what he, and what he called all pestilential distempers were caused by what he called poisonous insects, which he described as living creatures visible only with the help of viewing through a microscope. Now, during his life, he was widely criticized, and everyone thought he was crazy. Jump forward another 126 years, and we arrive at the Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Simmelweis. Now, this man is the one that I refer to lovingly as the father of modern handwashing. He's the one who discovered that disease was being spread in his hospital, and here's how. In his hospital, they had a disturbingly high rate of maternal death and death during childbirth, both of the mother and the child. And Ignaz, well, he was the one who discovered the reason behind it. You see, what was happening is that these doctors were not only working with patients, they were also using this hospital as training for new doctors. And so they were moving from one wing of the hospital where they were operating on cadavers and teaching students and immediately going and delivering babies. Yikes. Uh, Home birth doesn't sound so crazy now, does it? Uh, Now we have the amazing ability to zoom in and to observe what's going on with germs. We can study cells and bacteria. In fact, the most powerful microscopes in the world can see more than one millionth of a millimeter. And what scientists continue to learn is that the things that seem so tiny, maybe even insignificant in our minds, are anything but. You see, God created every cell and every molecule and every atom as an astonishingly intricate universe in and of itself. There are occasions in the life of a Christian where we look at a particular doctrine or a theological point and we think to ourselves that it is so small or so simple that it doesn't even seem to be anything there. But as we fix our attention on that aspect of God, we are blown away at the immense depth and the richness and complexity of what's to be found there. 
And today what we're going to do is consider one such a doctrine, one that when I say it, people are often like, oh yeah, I know that, I get that, I understand that, I believe that, but one that is so rich and so deep and so powerful that if you were to meditate upon it for the rest of your life, you would never come to the bottom of it. This is one that should leave us on our knees in awe of God, and it is the doctrine of our union with Christ. The way that we're going to go about scratching the surface of this immense and inexhaustible well of truth is to first define what it is, and then we're just going to apply it. Before we begin to apply or define, let's first go to the Father and ask for his help this morning. Our Father God, I just pray that today as we come to your word, as we look at your Son, Jesus Christ, I ask, Father God, that you would help us, for we can do nothing apart from you. We need your grace to hear. We need your grace to understand. We need your grace to apply. And so today I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would enliven our hearts, renew our minds, and reveal Jesus Christ to us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do this for us in a way that is not only clear but noticeable, recognizable as our lives begin to change. So, Father God, we pray that Jesus Christ would be uh, in our eyes expanded this morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. A Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines the doctrine of union with Christ like this. It says, According to the New Testament, the religious experience of the earliest Christians was derived from and dependent upon Christ. Christian experience is more than an imitation of the life of Jesus. It is the present experience of the risen Christ indwelling the believer's heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Caleb Bunch simplified version is this. Christ joins himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are truly, inseparably, and eternally joined to him. The doctrine of union with Christ is all over the New Testament. You you can hardly go a page without coming across dozens of examples of it. In Paul's epistles alone, there are over 200 examples of this teaching, which, which led the Scottish theologian James Stewart to say, quote, the heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ. It's on almost every page, but you often overlook it, just like people overlook germs. Well, here's one example how. Nearly every time the New Testament uses the phrase in Christ or in him or even with Christ, it is referring to union with Christ. We are made one with him. These phrases, these little simple phrases like in Christ, they are So small, they're like cells or atoms, and they are often ignored when we read our Bibles. But as we zoom in with the microscope, we'll see that this is indeed what John Murray called the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Now, before moving ahead any further, let me clarify. I am not saying, when when I say one with Christ, I am not saying that being a Christian makes us Jesus Christ. No, we continue to be ourselves. We do not cease to be us. We do not become God, but it does join us to Jesus in a very real and spiritual way. Union with Christ is beautifully depicted for us in Ephesians chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 28 through 32. It says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, of course, we usually use these verses to speak about the topic of marriage, and rightfully so. Just as an FYI, our youth minister, Francesco Loverde, just recently got engaged to Peyton Wolford. Praise the Lord for that. We can encourage them. Not to make you feel too uncomfortable, but Francesco and Peyton, this will help you. And every other married person in the room, this will help you in terms of your marriage. It was designed, in part, to help you understand how to live appropriately with one another in marriage. But consider the argument that Paul is making here, that a man and a woman who are married become one flesh, yet, before God, they remain two individuals. When they are judged, they are not going to be judged as a unit, but as single individuals. The faith of the husband cannot save the wife, nor would the lack of faith in a husband result in the condemnation of a believing wife. Both of them stand before the judgment as an individual responsible for their own life. But in a very real way, married people are one flesh, yet they remain their own identities. So although this passage is about marriage, it is primarily about the mysterious union that Christ has with the church. Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church because the church literally, in that sense, becomes his own body. He joins us together with him to the point that he calls us his own body. The very institution of marriage, the reason God designed it, the reason he created it, the reason he established it in the garden was to display to us the union that Christ would eventually have with the church. So when we get saved, we do not become Christ any more than I became Ashley when I got married to her. Yet in a very real and a very mysterious sense, we are made one with him. Now in order to explain this, I'm going to borrow a little bit from Anthony Hokema. He looks at eight different ways that union with Christ is played out in our salvation. The first thing that he notes is that we are initially united with Christ in regeneration. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, which says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, this does not mean that we are made alive like Christ. No, it means that we are made together with Christ. God has united Christ with us. That is what we find taking place in regeneration, when we are made alive. The second thing that we see is that it is, uh, we appropriate and we continue to live out this union through faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a very well-known verse says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith does not just make us friends with God. It does make us friends with God. Praise God for that. But it does not just make us friends with God. God uses our faith to unite us to Christ to the extent that the scripture can say that Christ lives in me. Marcus Johnson explains this really well when he says, quote, The reformers never meant that faith is saving because one believes, but rather that faith is saving because of whom faith receives. 
Believing information is not what saves you. It's trusting in a person who then joins himself to you, and that is what saves you. Now, I want to pause for a moment and note that union with Christ is spoken about in two distinct ways. First, and most commonly, it's spoken about as us being in Christ. But occasionally, like here in this verse, it says that it is Christ in us. In the last 100 years or so, there's a saying that's become very common in Christian circles, and that is that we should invite Jesus into our heart. Now, that's not biblical language, and there are many problems with some of the ways that that has been used and especially abused in children's ministry and evangelism. It has, in my estimation, been the cause of many false conversions as we've pressured people just to say the right words without actually having faith in their heart. However, we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The notion of Christ living in us is vital to the Christian faith. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 puts it like this. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only hope that you ever have to experience glory is if Christ lives in you. Now, as we will see throughout the rest of the sermon, Scripture speaks of union with Christ in both of these ways. Me in Christ and Christ in me. Now, sometimes it will do that in the same sentence. And this is sometimes a little bit mind-boggling. This is what we refer to as mutual abiding. Now, you might say to yourself, that is illogical. How can something be completely consumed by something else while simultaneously completely consuming something else. You might say that's impossible, it's illogical, and you might think that because there is literally nothing in the entire physical universe that functions this way. So our limited minds might respond to think that that's irrational, but it isn't. It's not irrational or illogical, but it is mysterious. We have a faith that is not contrary to reason, but it does transcend reason. Consider just a few foundational aspects of our faith that transcend human reason. Exhibit A, the center of the entire Christian faith, the Trinity. God is one and God is three. God is one what and three who's, as Mike Neglia likes to put it. The hypostatic union, the nature of Jesus himself. He is 100% God, fully God, and he is 100% man in one person. That is difficult to understand. We believe that God is both fully sovereign and that man is fully responsible for his actions. We live in the tension of all of these mysteries and many more. One of the dangers of the modern church is that we are really nervous about anything that sounds mysterious because it might push us into the realm of mysticism or the hyper-charismatic movement, when in reality, this has always been deeply central to the Christian religion. If you are a Christian, it is because God has graciously united you to Christ, and you dwell in Him, and He dwells in you. The third thing that I want you to see about, about our union with Christ is that we are justified in union with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, there's our words, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our justification, the process by which we are made righteous, 
has, must not simply be seen as some kind of legal declaration of innocence, although it certainly includes that. It is also necessary that we see that it begins by being united to Christ. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, for years, I have given the courtroom illustration. I have said this often. I will continue to say this often, that one day you will stand before the courtroom of God, and he will ask you something uh, such as your record. He will discuss it with you, and you will have to stand there, and you will either say that you are guilty by nature of standing in your, your uh, own strength, or you will say, I am free because it was paid for at the cross. I always spoke of this as though I am going to be the one giving that appeal. But actually, it will be Jesus that is standing there. Actually, it is his record that will be on display. I will never have to be in that form of judgment. It will be Christ because I am in him. Allow me to offer another example of this from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, and here we go, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now let me ask you, what does that mean when he says be found in him. Found by who? Who is it that Paul is concerned about here? Paul is saying that being found in Christ is what gives him his alien righteousness. The point that he's getting at is that God the Father himself will identify us as being in Jesus Christ, his only son. Now we can mine diamonds from this point for hours, but let me move on to the fourth aspect of union with Christ, which is that we are sanctified through union with Christ. Now, there's a multitude of examples in the scriptures of this point, but allow me to offer you my favorite one. This is John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, which says, Abide in me, and I in you. There we have that mutual abiding. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is impossible for you to bear fruit of the Holy Spirit or fruit of repentance or uh, the peaceable fruit of righteousness that the Bible speaks about unless you are abiding in Christ and he is abiding in you. Now, this is perhaps one of the most intimate glimpses of the doctrine of union with Christ in relation to our sanctification. It is this beautiful picture that Christ is saying, I want you to be connected to me just like a vine is connected to a branch. When we are in him, there is a natural pull that occurs by which God causes us to desire him and to be like him. Sanctification, the process of becoming holy, only occurs when we are found in the one who he himself is holy. And we're going to come back and look at this a little bit more when we get to the application point of our sermon. So let's move on now to number five, that we persevere in the life of faith in union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it that keeps you persevering? 
What is it that ensures that you will remain in the faith? It is the love of God. Well, how is it that a sinful man like me, someone like me, can experience the ongoing, uninterrupted, invisible, indivisible, unbreakable love of God? Is because I am in Christ and the Father loves the Son. Therefore, the Father shows me love equal to the measure that he shows his own Son. My perseverance fully relies upon the fact that I am bound together with the Son of God, and I am therefore joined with the eternal loving bond that has always been there within the Trinity. The Trinity has loved one another forever and infinitely. That love cannot be increased. And that love he sets on us if we are in him. Now, we're going to come back again to this as well in our application. So let's move now to number six. That we are even said to die in Christ. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, if we stop and think about this for a moment, it is an odd thing that God would describe someone who is dying as dying in the Lord. Isn't dying the curse? How is it that he says we are dying in the Lord? What does that even mean? Now, although this phrase, in the Lord, certainly correlates with dies as a Christian or died in a saved state or died after they were justified, it's actually more than that. It literally means that they have died physically while they are bound together spiritually with the God-man Jesus. They died in a state where they were inseparably, inseparably bonded to the second person of the Trinity. So if you are a Christian, when you die, you don't have to fear the curse of eternal death because you're not going into death by yourself. You are going into death bonded to the eternal person of Jesus Christ, the one who said that death could not hold him, the one who has proven death could not hold him. And so that when you go into that grave, you are not going into eternity in death. You are going cloaked in a mysterious and majestic way in the person of Jesus Christ, who is life himself. This leads us very nicely into our seventh aspect of union with Christ in regards to our salvation experience, that we shall also be raised with him. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, which says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in Christ, shall all be made alive. Now let me ask you, does this verse indicate that everyone will be saved? Does this teach universalism? The answer, of course, is no. It does teach the universal uh, nature of sin, for in Adam all die, when you were born, you were born in Adam. But it certainly does not teach universalism. Here's how we know that. Because it's only those, as it says, who are in Christ who will be made alive. Another picture of this kind of being raised can be found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, which says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, now, that's audacity. Paul is actually indicating that Christians are somehow, right now, currently able to seek heavenly things. That is way above our station. 
We are earth-dwelling people. And he says, seek things that are in heaven. How can you do that? How is that possible? Look, I'm standing behind a box up here on a stage in a building on this planet. How am I supposed to be seeking things in heaven? Well, Paul seems not only to say we can, but to expect the people of Colossae to understand that they have been raised with Christ and because they have been raised with him, they are united with Christ and therefore they are able to live with their eyes set on the sure promises of eternity. This is why Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now we come to number eight, the last of our aspects of union with Christ that we'll look at today. There's a lot more stuff we could consider but consider that we shall be eternally glorified with Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. First, let's look at the beauty of the idea that Christ is our life. If we have been redeemed, our life is his life. Going back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. But Paul doesn't stop. God's love for us does not merely stop at justifying us or sanctifying us or giving us faith or causing us to persevere. God actually allows us to experience glory as we are found in Christ. We will appear with him in glory. Now, as I said previously, this doctrine is rich, we're just going to scratch the surface. In, in a few minutes, what we're going to do is we are going to set our attention fully on the Lord's table. And I'd like to actually ask the ushers if they would go ahead and come forward and begin to pass out these elements. And I'm going to shift now into a time of talking about how we apply these things to ourselves. I'm going to ask that as the ushers pass these elements out, that you receive them and hold on to them and wait until we can all partake together with them. As the ushers make their way to you, I'd like to draw out two broad applications from everything that I've said today. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't think I understood anything you said. Uh, you talked too fast. Uh, you said a lot of things. You used a lot of verses. I'm really not confident that I understand what the big deal is here. Here's the big deal in terms of how we apply these things. These applications are incredibly broad, and they are for you. They are broad enough that they are for every person that is in this room. Both of them, without exception, are for every single Christian. Our two applications this morning are going to be that union with Christ should lead us to first, personal holiness, and second, personal worship. Let's first explore how this leads us to personal holiness. One of the greatest Christological passages in the entire Bible is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. It's there that it teaches us how we see the example of Jesus' humility, and then we live accordingly. I want you to see how that passage starts. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, there's our phrase, in Christ Jesus. We don't have time to fully explore this, but let me let this sink in with you for just a minute. The fact that we have been united to Christ means that we are able to share in the mind of Christ. We are able to think like him because we are in him. Unbelievers cannot do that. They cannot do what Paul is commanding here. They cannot because they cannot have the mind of Christ unless they are first in Christ. 
in the New Testament epistles, when you come to a command, anytime you see a command, it is almost always directly accompanied by a statement which underscores the fact that you can't obey that command unless you are in Christ. These passages stand as eternal billboards for us to the fact that we are weak and we are helpless, but he is strong and he is able. And as new creations who are in him, we can and are called to be like him. Let's consider a specific passage which speaks to our need to live in a holy way. This is an extreme example, but hopefully helpful to you. This is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Members, like your fingers are members of your body. They are members of Christ. Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Perhaps the most extreme illustration Paul ever gives. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But, here's the key, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Marcus Johnson writes of this passage and says, Paul thinks that bodily union with a prostitute is shameful and unholy because believers are already in union with Jesus Christ that includes their bodies. Our union with Christ is so intensely personal that whenever we sin with our bodies, we are bringing shame upon ourselves because we are, in a genuine and eternal way, one with Jesus. Let me argue now from the greater to the lesser. What if you use your tongue to speak lies or your tongue to gossip about someone or tear them down? What if you use your hands to steal or to type in lies as far as you cheating on your taxes or some other inappropriate, write some inappropriate thing on social media? What if you use your eyes to indulge in pornography? What if you use your teeth and your stomachs to overindulge in the good gift of food that God has given? What if you use your mind, your physical brain, to entertain lust or violent, aggressive thoughts? Are we not also bringing shame to the God with whom we are united? The doctrine of union with Christ should cause us to run from sin and cling to Christ for holiness and sanctification. When kids are young, uh, look, I, I realize we just got through the Christmas season. I'm sorry, I'm going to drag you back in for a minute. When kids are young, sometimes we sing this song with them, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Your reason for being good is that there's somebody watching you, and that somebody is going to decide whether or not to give you presents. And in recent years, we have created this new element, the elf on the shelf, this informant that tells Santa about everything that's going on in your life. Look, the church has adopted this exact same kind of thinking. Sometimes you adopt this exact same kind of thinking. You better not sin because, look, Jesus is looking down at you from heaven. He's watching you. Don't you see it's so much deeper than Jesus just peering at you from some distant cloud. Jesus lives in you, and you are hidden in him. And when you sin, you do so in Christ. You do so in the face of the one who has joined you to him eternally. So brothers and sisters, this should lead us to our knees in repentance let it lead us to a life of personal holiness, of abandoning those things that he hates and pursuing those things that he loves.
Our second application is that the doctrine of union with Christ should lead us to deep, rich, powerful, personal worship. In John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, Jesus prayed. This is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It's the whole chapter of John 17. We're just going to look at a couple verses where Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, let me be clear. Jesus moved at this point in his prayer from praying for only his disciples to now praying for every person who would ever be a Christian. That means that in the garden, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was praying with you in mind. He was praying for you personally. And he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. This is mind-blowing. Christ's intention in taking on flesh and living the perfect life and dying on the cross was this, that we might become one with Christ so that we might enter into the love that the Trinity has shared forever. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly loving forever. Infinite love towards one another forever. In love, God the Father sent Jesus to bring us into himself so that we might be part of that eternal love forever. The greatest application that I could ever give you is right here. Just consider Jesus. Just meditate daily on this truth, that he loved you in this way, to make you one with himself, that God loved you so much that he sent Christ to join himself to you through the process of the cross. What could be better than that? Every single time you read your Bible and you see those words, in Christ, or in him, or with Christ, pause, stop, be amazed that Jesus would join himself to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let that lead your heart to worship. Right now you have in your hand a piece of bread that symbolizes the reality that Jesus came physically, bodily, to join you to himself in perfect and eternal union. These elements, the bread and the cup, they're not mystical. They're not magical. They are not going to turn into the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. They're just bread and they're just juice. But they symbolize, they represent, they picture the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. And the cup symbolizes the blood that he shed so that we might be one with him. It is the new covenant in his blood. Our union with him was purchased at a great cost through the very act that these symbols represent, his death. If you're a child of God, if you are born again, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, if you have been made one with him, then I ask that you please take the bread and you remember Jesus Christ who suffered for you. Let's partake together. And if you are a saint of the Lord, purified by his blood, 
redeemed by his grace, adopted into his family, made one with him, then I would ask that you take the cup as we partake together and remember Jesus was crucified for us. He is indeed crucified, risen, and coming again so that we might be one with him forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do give you thanks, Lord, that you have given us your Son. Lord, I acknowledge that just as no one in this room can fully comprehend the invisible world around us of cellular biology, it is invisible, active, and impossible for us to fully comprehend, even so much more so, the depth of the glory of this doctrine of union with Christ is beyond our comprehension. But Lord God, I pray that every child of God in this room would be growing in their awareness of just how kind you have been to make us one with you. Lord, I pray that every person in this room that doesn't know you, who is currently separated from Christ, outside of the family of God, Lord, we pray that through the preaching of your word today that you would soften their hearts and bring them to saving faith. And Father God, in all of these things, we pray that you would be kind to us by allowing us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we apply these things to our life in holiness and in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.